Hello, and welcome to The Stockout. This is your show at FreightWaves for all things related to CPGs or their consumer packaged goods and their supply chains. I'm Mike Bowden, just a an analyst and market expert here. And uh, today uh, we're going to be focusing on the P in CPG. We're going to be talking about packaging and uh, product design um, with a guest, uh, Fred Hart, who's a partner at a company called uh, Interact. He's a partner and creative director at Interactive. He's a, a brand building agency based out of Boulder, Colorado. So we're going to be um, you know, showing some examples of um, you know, ways he's helped other uh, CPG companies. I think some cool, so have some cool art to, to show and some cool stories as well. And, and we're going to try to relate those to you know, other trends in, uh, in, in the CPG industry. I hope this, this is going to be interesting. I, I think I'm um, you know, pretty excited about this one. Uh, but before we do that, um, just encourage anyone who's interested in uh, CPG, who's a, a carrier or a CPG company themselves, uh, sign up for my newsletter. Go to www.freightwaves.com forward slash the stockout. And you can uh, get a CPG newsletter in your inbox, um, you know, once to twice a week. We try to get it out twice a week. And I would also encourage people who are not signed up already to uh, sign up for our big in-person conference. This is the first uh, post uh, height of the pandemic in-person conference that we have at uh, FreightWaves. It's going to take place May 9th and 10th in Northwest Arkansas at the Rogers Convention Center. Um, so the two days after um, Mother's Day. So spend May 8th with your mom and spend May 9th and 10th um, with us at uh, in Northwest Arkansas, which is uh, you know pretty much a logistics hub with some important uh, carriers and of course um, at least one important uh, retailer that uh, I can think of. And some of the CPG companies that are going to be there include Nestle and Unilever and uh, Tyson. So um, hope to see you there. Um, so with that, I'll talk about the first uh, topic, which I'm just going to do one news item so we can get to our guests. But the first you know topic I want to talk about is transportation stocks um, are underperforming uh, the last, let's say the last you know week or so. And um, you know, do you think FreightWaves has something to do with that? Have a, have a stock a chart that shows the Dow Jones transportation average. And the Dow Jones transportation average is in black there. Uh, and the S&P 500 is the blue line. So you see those moving fairly well in alignment in the past month up until let's call it April 1st, and um, you know, really uh, attribute that largely to some of the articles that have come out on FreightWaves.com. Um, you know, that's not the objective of those articles. The objective is to bring transpar- transparency to uh, transportation logistics participants. Um, but you, you see there, um, you know, Dow Transportation Index down about 9.5% the last five days. Um, so would encourage everyone who hasn't done it already to go to FreightWaves.com and read up on the thesis of why uh, bloodbath in the trucking industry uh, may be coming. Um, our CEO Craig Fuller put out um, you know, two uh, influential articles. Um, you know, w- one last week, one you know the week before. Um, at the end of the week, to you know talk about why you know demand uh, is is slowing and supply is increasing. And I think the stock market reaction shows that that um, thesis. Um, you know, has a lot of, uh, you know, people who agree with it. Um, you know, my experience as a stock analyst is, you know, when you have a, a call that moves the market, a lot of the, 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 the participants in the stock market were already sort of halfway there already. Um, and, and, you know, this was maybe the, you know, one thing that sort of pushed them to, to, to end up trading. But, you know, if, if, if stock market traders, uh, analysts, um, and investors were, um, were, were not halfway there already to that thesis, 
you know, then, then the stock market wouldn't move. But basically, um, you know, thesis is demand is impaired by inflation crowding out more discretionary purchases that would move on trucks, um, purchases away from physical goods as people, you know, get out and about more inventories are at a, right, at a high level in a lot of cases and rising interest rates are going to slow down demand. And then on the, on the supply side, we've had a record number of new truck uh, registrations um, with a lot of uh, company drivers um, striking out on their own for the first time. These are less experienced people as business owners, even if they are experienced um, you know, in the transportation industry. So um, what tends to happen is that capacity comes online, even after freight demand you know, comes down. Um, and that's part of the reason why it's important to uh, follow uh, freight uh, um, you know, data, you know, every day and uh, would make the argument that um, for those for those participants um, in the stock market, analyst investors, you know, you do have to sort of get ahead of some of those articles that, you know, come out on, on, on freight waves. We're relying, you know, partially on the sonar data and uh, partially on just our networks um, and, and talking to carriers and brokers uh, and shippers out in the field what they're seeing, what they're doing, and um, you know, a way to get ahead of some of those st- stock market reaction in response to those articles is to follow what's happening in Sonar, um, you know, every day. So I think it's it's um, you know especially important for um, you know those uh, people that that trade uh, transportation stocks. So that is a little bit of, of, of an intro. Um, I, we're going to go to our main topic today, which is CPG branding and packaging strategies. I'm going to introduce our guest. Our guest is Fred Hart. Fred is a partner and creative director at Interact, a branding and packaging design firm that specializes in um, uh, assisting consumer packaged goods companies. Their clients include Monster Energy, Fitvine, Boulder Canyon Chips, and Fat Snacks. So we're going to bring on Fred. And, and Fred, thank you for joining me. Hey, Mike. It's good to be here. And I'm excited to be talking about some creative with all the left brain conversation around stocks and uh, inventory. Should be fun. Exactly, I mean, that's part of the idea with this with this um, you know show is let's try try to think of the the perspective um, also from the you know shippers perspective, CPG companies perspective. So um, yeah, I think what would be fun is I've got some some pictures lined up, and and maybe we can just show the pictures, and you can you know walk us through you know some of the thought process you know be, behind that, and, and some of the process behind sort of the creativity that went into some of these you know some of these packages. So the first one I want to put up is. The, the boom chicka pop, which I've heard you talk about on um, on, on another show, um, but yep. you know, why don't you describe for us, um, you know, how that came to, to be? Yeah, so boom chicka pop is uh, a brand that we talk a lot about as an agency because it sort of holds up to one of our key mantras and principles as a creative studio, which is to always challenge the category, not the consumer. So much of uh, success and CPG is about being able to stand out and increase in sales and velocities and positioning yourself against other companies. What Boom Chicka Pop did, which was pretty remarkable at the time, was it really leaned into personality, a totally different color palette from most of the category. And you know, you're looking at something that's evolved greatly from what uh, Boom Chicka Pop first looked like, but our initial packaging had no popcorn on it. And that's significant for folks in design and consumers as well, because by relegating that area on pack where most people are showing off that product photography and using it for personality and flavor attribution, they were able to establish themselves as sort of a really delicious um, or modern style brand where all of the other companies that were showing popcorn, who doesn't know what popcorn looks like? feel dated and really conventional. And so this really whet the appetite of modern day consumers. 
And, and when you say challenge the category, not the consumer, does, does that mean just have a product that's differentiated from what else is, is next to it? Or, or what does that mean exactly? Yeah. So a lot of people will think about like Zig when others zag, but really challenge the category, not the consumer is a, a more strategic lens. You can be different for different sake from a branding and design perspective to try to get noticed at retail. But so often what can happen is you're just being different and you're showing up in a clown suit where a bunch of people are wearing tuxedos, where instead you'd be better off maybe wearing a tuxedo, but having a really bright, flashy handkerchief pocket or um, you know, a really interesting inlay inside of the jacket, something that allows you to sort of fit in categorically with the general understanding of consumers, but something that also helps you stand out simultaneously. And so that's what we think about when we're really trying to identify category tropes, things that the um, competition are all sort of utilizing the same playbook for and not asking themselves, how can we bring disruption into the scene that actually helps consumers think about it differently rather than something that's so different that it ends up alienating a consumer. That, that's interesting. It seems like a maybe a fine line to, to, to walk. Um, but yeah, I think you did nicely with the, yes. the boom sugar pops. Um, how about we bring up another one? Why don't we go to the Dr. Squatch Pine Tar personal care products? So these don't look like they were made by Procter & Gamble. Was, was that part of the idea here? <laughs> uh, yeah, so this has an amazing backstory. It started by a 30-some-odd entrepreneur about five years ago. And this business is doing about $150 million in revenue to date, uh, mostly direct-to-consumer. What they identified was essentially that uh, men were never being marketed to in sort of a funny or authentic manner. So they came up with this idea of this Squatch-like character who is using natural ingredients um, to create soaps. And what the founder realized early on is that Procter and Gamble, Gambles and the Unilevers of the world, their soap products are actually labeled as detergents because of the types of ingredients that they have in there. Um, and so they've really been on this mission to sort of disrupt the soap bar category and bring people back to a more natural space when it comes to the ingredients. And they've really packaged up with humor. So oftentimes what Interact is brought in to do is work with these very successful DTC brands that need to pursue an omni-channel approach. Any successful D2C brand eventually needs to go to retail. And what works online does not necessarily work offline on shelves. So um, we worked with the great folks at Dr. Squatch and really helped polish up their brands, get their brand equities in place, revamp their packaging. Because one of the things that happens with D2C companies is they sort of exist in their own vacuum. They don't actually have to really compete with other brands. But in a retail format, as you well know, you're sitting next to a plethora of competitors um, right next to you. And so what we do is we help ready brands to compete um, in a very you know physical format that also then ultimately benefits their direct-to-consumer businesses. So this was one example where we uh, evolved the Dr. Squatch branding. Okay, so that's interesting. I didn't realize they were a direct-to-consumer brand. So we've seen a lot of companies launch as direct-to-consumer brands. Some of those have been acquired by large companies that like what they're, what they're on to. Um, you know, yep. is there any thought about how to keep the direct-to-consumer brands sort of relevant and differentiated and sort of still addressing that, that sort of core market, you know, when they become part of the bigger company? Because I think some people maybe don't want to buy something that's, you know, sold by one of the biggest companies. Yeah, absolutely. 
I mean, design plays a really large role in that, and that's what we focus on. So, you know, see your opening comment. This does not look like it's owned by Procter and Gamble. You know, if they're building a, a good business, eventually P&G or Unilever is going to want to acquire them. But ensuring that their brand behaviors are authentic, ensuring that their design remains authentic to them and suddenly doesn't get, um, you know, big washed, if you will, with all of this sort of like design elements that we associate with big food or big, um, big business is, is really critical and important. And if you look at a case study like Ben & Jerry's, Ben & Jerry's has done a really, really great job despite being owned um, by Unilever, I believe, of maintaining its core authenticity. They still come out. They're still a very political brand, but maybe Unilever, the parent company, is not. Um, so that ultimately is what really maintains that connection that starts from an independently owned, vision-led, entrepreneurial-founded brand to something that's still acquired, but has, um, you know, has its place in the world. Yeah, that's a great example with the with Ben and Jerry's. I mean, I think a part of their, at least my understanding is, is part of the agreement, the acquisition agreement was that Ben and Jerry's could still make those political statements that they're known for. Of course, in the last several months, they've made some that I think Unilever <laughs> would have preferred they they, they didn't make. Um, but uh, yep. they, they continue on as a, as a Unilever brand and a, a valuable one as the Unilever's built out other you know ice cream uh, their, their ice cream portfolio. Um, I want to bring on the um, the, the the Boulder Canyon. Uh, chips bags, um, and this was another, you know, uh, graphic that you sent me, um, you know, earlier today. If, uh, you know, there it is, and and you know what this reminds me of is I lived in Baltimore for a long time, and there you see a lot of people eating Utz chips. They're sort of everywhere just because Utz is Maryland family that that everyone yep, yep, yep. sort of knows or knows of, and, and this is kind of like it's it's kind of like supporting the hometown team if you're from from Boulder and you eat those those chips. Is that the idea? It is. So you actually uh, kind of hit on a, an underlining piece of strategy that informed the work. So Utz, as a business, actually acquired Boulder Canyon. And a part of their mm. acquisition of Boulder Canyon, they wanted to dust the brand off um, and really continue to make a splash in retail with it. Utz has less distribution in the West Coast, nor did they really have a player in the natural space. So if you think about kettle chip brands or Cape Cod chips, these are more natural-oriented products rather than pots, which is a little bit more mainstream and conventional. So they wanted that to be a part of their overall portfolio strategy, having something that could play in the natural space. And what we did was we really helped um, evolve the Boulder Canyon packaging to be more successful at shelf. So when I talked to previously about challenge category, not the consumer, when we did a competitive audit of all of the other companies out there selling chips, what we noticed was most people focused on quantity over quality in terms of the amount of chips shown on pack. They'd be giant bowls, they'd be giant stacks, they'd be falling chips everywhere. And what we really wanted to focus on was the quality of the chip, the texture, the crinkles, um, the types of olive oils or flavors that were put onto these chips. And so what we did was we actually moved from a giant bowl on the previous packaging to just three chips. And the way that they're sort of set up to be um, metaphoric to the mountains, to the Flatirons, which is a, an iconic landmark in Colorado. And, um, you know, lo and behold, this redesign helped this previously declining brand um, realize a 51% turnaround in overall sales with an annualized impact of $13 million in revenue in one year. And that's with no marketing spend or support from us, just putting the revamped packaging into stores. So this had a profound effect. It increased velocities and... Um, you know, now it's one of the, the fastest moving ship brands in the country. 
Yeah, it does grab your attention. I, and, and, you know, I didn't notice until you, you pointed that out, but you look at the texture of the hickory barbecue chip and then the texture yep. of the avocado oil or sea salt, and, and they're distinct, the, the middle picture and the, and the picture on the, on the right there. So it's, it was interesting to, to, to call that out. Yep, for sure. I mean, you know, those things matter to consumers. And so showing off the textural components of a chip um, matters. And you can only do that if you use three chips on a bag rather than 20, because 20 is going to be a lot smaller. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, got one more picture here that uh, you sent me. It's the dogfish head, um, you know, IPA uh, and, and other, um, you know, six packs. We can put that yep. on the screen and, uh, you know, saw a lot of that in, in, in Baltimore when I lived there because they're, they're in the base out of Delaware. And, it's, and you see it a lot of, right. elsewhere right. too. It's, it's, it's a good, it, it's, it, so this one, you know, dogfish, you know, you have a good product and you, I guess you just want people to grab that one instead of a different one. And if we can get the, the, the graphic up, um, that would be great. But, you know, you, you have, um, you know, the, the dogfish IPA, which is just sort of just absolutely covered in hops. And then you have the other six packs that have that distinct logo, but very different colors. And it, it kind of makes you want, there, there we go. So we see the, the dogfish head, 60 minute IPA, just absolutely covered in hops. So you know what you're getting there. You almost know what it's going to taste yep. like before you, you try it. And then it, 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 you carry that logo over to the others. It kind of makes you want to try, try all of them. That's definitely a part of the strategy. When we worked with Dogfish Head, this work was maybe done six, five years ago, um, working with Sam Caligione, who's, uh, you know, the Steve Jobs visionary of craft beer. What was happening is their portfolio was so expansive that it was fragmented visually. And so they might put out one piece of seasonal beer or some sort of a specialty beer. And you'd have no idea that it was actually part of Dogfish Head. So part of what we did and part of what we do when we work with these heritage companies is come in and get to know their story, their brand equities, figure out their positioning in the marketplace, and then give them a visual language that helps represents them authentically, as well as primes, primes them for the future. And so craft beer can often be such an intimidating space, especially for younger drinkers. If you don't have a beard, tattoos, or flannel, you can feel really alienate, alien to the whole experience. <laughs> so, you know, what we really wanted to do was um, democratize the language of craft beer by allowing people to understand with their eyes first what was in it. And then if you notice on the side panels, there's actually a bottle silhouette that has sort of a visual and verbal narrative of what actually is brewed into the beer and what are the different flavors so that when they show up at a party with a six-pack in hand, they can be confident that they know what they've actually picked up rather than this secretive cult-like element. Um, and that was really huge. When we did the redesign, the category was stagnant or growing um, single digits a year. They saw a 20% increase in sales year over year. Speaking of inventory and distribution earlier, um, they actually ran out of uh, inventory in a lot of their stores and they have really good modeling to predict a lot of these things, but velocities were uh, at such a high clip uh, that they ended up selling out in a lot of different places. And um, ultimately, you know, two to three years later after the redesign, Sam Adams or Boston Beer Company acquired Dogfish Head. So sort of phenomenal end story and just another great example of creative really being a tool for businesses to connect better with people and ultimately create um, an impact on the bottom line. That was a great success story. Um, you know, sticking with the, the topic of, of beer, um, you know, have you noticed much in terms of cans versus bottles and even on soft drinks, cans versus the, the, the plastic bottles in terms of yeah. new product um, launch? It, 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 yeah, no, it's a good question. So 
we're seeing right now, there's just a backlash against plastic um, from many consumers. Now, mind you, it's not all consumers. There's, uh, there's often um, people making too many broad assumptions that all consumers don't want plastic, which is really not the case. That's like saying, you know, when tricks revamped their cereal by General Mills and took all the artificial colors and flavors out of it, sales actually declined because they, they were just paying attention to high-level trends but didn't actually ask their consumer what those people wanted. Um, and their backlash resulted in tricks going back to the original formulation. So all of that to be said, um, you know, aluminum is definitely the, the preference, both for cost of freight and shipping. Glass is much heavier, as you know, and your audience knows far better than I do. Um, aluminum, the recyclability is great, but there is a, a shortage. And that has impacted a lot of more entrepreneurial companies trying to get their hands on raw goods uh, or inventory. And it's been tough and it's forced them to be creative. Um, maybe they'll just take stock cans and just apply labels over it. Um, you know, maybe they'll uh, take previous inventory and actually pack, uh, put packaging design over the top of it. So if people are having to come up with some creative ways to uh, navigate these supply chain issues. Yeah, I've seen a lot of that too. Um, you know, we've, we've, we've gone through some examples of some success stories. What are some mistakes you see CPG companies doing with their packaging or labeling or, or, or brand um, management? One thing we like to talk about is the NASCAR effect, where companies slapping every single product claim and certification onto their front panel, which you end up is with this cacophony of all of these like conflating pieces of uh, information. And what it really says is the company doesn't understand its clients or its consumers, uh, really. And so they're just using a shotgun approach. We'll put everything out there and hope that something sticks. What's really impactful is when a company speaks with confidence and maybe only focuses on one to two product attributes. Uh, you know, it's similar to trying to catch tennis balls. If I were to throw five at you, Mike, right now, you wouldn't catch a single one. If I threw one to two, you'd catch them both. And so that's what brands need to do is understand who they are, what they stand for, what their consumer cares about, and then communicate directly to that. Um, so a lot of companies do make that mistake of just not knowing and thus putting everything they can onto the front of their packaging. Yeah, that's that's great insight there. I mean, you, you do see like every company trying to, trying to do everything. Um, you know, what are you seeing in terms of trends related to clean label? If you can answer it in the you know, two and a half minutes we have, we have left. I mean, so, so many are trying to claim to be clean label, um, you know, what, what do you make of this trend and, and what should we look for there? Consumers are reading ingredients more than ever. And uh, it can be scary for some consumers that really care about what they're putting in their body when they can't understand some of the ingredient lists. Clean label, you know, 10 years ago was dubbed all natural. And then you could get sued for that clean label. Some people define by shorter list of ingredients. Other people just want to make sure that it is ingredients that you can pronounce, even if it's a longer ingredient list. So it's, it's really sort of uh, fluid in terms of a definition, but the impact that it's having is finding ways to not say that you're clean label or all natural, but look clean or all natural. Um, so in the instance of RX bar, they put their ingredient list right on the front panel and that was pretty revolutionary. In the example of Kind Bar, they use transparency in their packaging so you can see through to the real ingredients that make up the bar. Other companies use natural, you know, design pieces of language that differ a lot from what you see in big CPG. So, for instance, like we're looking at the cereal category, um, highly saturated colors, things that you don't find in the real world, maybe mascots. Those are all signals that it's probably a less than healthy product for you. 
where, you know, utilizing white or craft or some of these other design cues are a quick, albeit stereotypical way to sort of help a consumer understand that there's something different around your product. Yeah, it's a great insight too. I mean, it's, it's kind of sh- like show, don't tell, essentially, yes. with, with, with some of these things. Um, yeah, I've got about one minute left. Um, you know, are there any other trends that you're seeing um, that we haven't hit on that, that, are, that are worth mentioning? And, um, you know, after that, um, why don't you tell folks where they can, can find you to reach out? Sure. Yeah. One big, um, one big sort of piece of trends or innovation in products are brain health. So there's a burgeoning category of products called nootropics, um, which are forms of adaptogens or vitamins or different, you know, complexes that are boosting brain health. So that's fascinating. We actually just launched a beverage um, in conjunction with Russell Wilson, uh, the NFL quarterback called Local Weather. That's a nootropic hydration beverage. Um, you're seeing it in a lot of other food elements. Rob Deerdeck, the sort of Hollywood celebrity and, and former skateboarder, launched a brand called MindRight, which we actually built for them as well. So it's it's sort of it's a fast-moving category and mushrooms definitely play into it. Okay. Uh, in terms Great. I'm going to have to reach out to stop here, us, but um, yeah, how, how, do, how can people find you? Yeah, interactbrands.com. Interactbrands.com. Yep. Interact Thanks very much, Fred. That was really fun. Thanks, Mike. Okay, bye now.